how many times do you have to be told something before it really sinks in? Do you know what I mean? That it's actually true. Some things, it doesn't matter how many times you're told, does it? No, you don't have fat hips. No, you really don't. No, you really... That isn't Caroline, by the way, do <laughs> No, you really don't. Are we, are we really not going to McDonald's? Really? No, really? Well, sometimes it's good news, isn't it? When you hear good news, it sometimes takes a while for it to sink in. You've won the lottery. What? Really? Yes. Or you're a father. What? Really? Yes, you're a father. Sometimes it takes really good news, even, uh, a while to sink in, doesn't it? Well, Abraham has received some really good news. God has promised him a land, a great people, and blessing beyond his imagination. And as if to hammer it home, God promises those things three times in Genesis. And each time God explains it, it seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And this morning's passage is no exception. It's the third and final time God makes these promises to Abraham, reiterating the promises that he's made. Not because Abraham disbelieves them, we already know that he believes them, but to assure him that it really is true, to let it sink in to his head what really is happening, that this really is good news and it really will happen. So the first thing we see this morning is the covenant clarified. I thought I'd do a bit of alliteration just for Steve. Uh, So we have righteousness renaming uh, realms and royalty. Have a look uh, down at verses 1 to 8. When Abraham uh, was uh, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Sorry, not verse 8, verse (laughs) 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. God speaks to Abraham, or Abraham at this point. Given his age here, uh, there's 99, normally that's a big clue that something big is going to happen when we're sort of given the stage of what's going on in Genesis. And what we really have here is not a new covenant, but actually just the same covenant repeated. What he's going to go on to say is the same one that we've heard the last two times in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. There's only one covenant with Abraham. The word there in verse 2, where it says that I may make my covenant between you, is not the usual word for making. Uh, We saw a couple of weeks ago that the normal word that the Bible uses for making a covenant is to cut a covenant, in the same way that we have to cut a deal. But the word here is not to cut, it's not even to make, it's to give. That's what it literally is, um, that I may give my covenant to you. So this is going to be about how God will give the covenant to Abraham, or Abram. I don't have to worry about that for this week. Uh, this is a, a message about means, how he's going to do it. So he's not making a new one here, but he's going to tell him more about how this covenant will come about, how it will happen. So what are the new information that we're told in this covenant about how it will come about? Well, the first thing we see is righteousness. God introduces himself in verse 1 as the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai, the all-powerful God. And he offers Abraham an invitation, really, linked with him giving the covenant. Walk before me and be blameless. Now this causes some confusion. 
It sounds, doesn't it, like it's conditions of the covenant. You know, if you do this, I'll do that. But last time we saw, that's not really what the covenant is about. But in a way, it sort of seems to be. It's linked to it, isn't it? This is how the covenant will be fulfilled. By walking blamelessly before the Lord. And you might think, well, maybe blameless doesn't really mean blameless. But when it says blameless... It almost sounds like Theresa May. Brexit means Brexit. Blameless means blameless. It's the word we have elsewhere as blemishless. You know, without a blemish. It's the word used for animals when they're sacrificed in the Old Testament. When it says you must take a lamb without a blemish. So it's spotless. So it is a really high bar that he's asking. The fact is, though, that God is not asking anything that he hasn't already given. Biblically speaking, Abraham, at this point, is already blameless. How? By faith. So Genesis 15, verse 6, it's on the back of your notice sheets. And he believed the Lord, that's Abraham, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, righteousness and blamelessness are basically synonymous. They're basically the same word in Genesis. So think about the receiver of the previous covenant, Noah. Note how the ideas go together. Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Same ideas brought together. Walking, blamelessness, righteousness. So being blameless and being righteous and walking with God are virtually the same ideas here in Genesis. And they're all linked with this covenant with Abraham. How exactly, we'll see as we go on. But there is righteousness involved in this covenant. (laughs) Secondly, we see there's a renaming. Abraham means exalted father. And he gets renamed Abraham, meaning father of multitudes. Now, if you think about it, Abraham, his first name, must have been quite cruel, really, for a man who had spent so much of his life without children. Actually, he wasn't a father, was he, for a long, long time. It could be a reference to his dad. So, you know, this this child has an exalted father. Um, You know, a bit like the way that dads sometimes name their kids their own name and then sort of add junior on, you know. I don't know if any of you guys are a junior. I'm not going to ask. My granddad was a junior. But it sort of gives you the impression, you know, I'm so wonderful, I need to name my child the same. Um, It could be that Terah named him Exalted Father because he thought he was wonderful. Anyway, (laughs) now he's renamed Abraham. God often renames people when he adopts them in some special way for a special purpose. So Abraham becomes Abraham. Later on in Genesis, Jacob becomes Israel. And in the New Testament too, Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. Actually, his change of name actually is quite common when God is going to use someone. And along with the name change is a promise to fit. We see it in the way that he's told that he will be father of many nations. So the next thing we see is realms. Do you see that there in verses 4 and 5? Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. The promise of a great people is upped again. 
Not only is he going to be the father of a great nation, but the father of many nations. Now, it might seem more realisable now, more realistic, now that he's actually got one child at this point, Ishmael. In fact, we find out he's had a son for 13 years. But the father of many nations, that seems a huge promise, doesn't it? Not just one great nation, but many but the people promise is not the only promise that's up. The blessing promise is too. Have a look at verses 6 and 7. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. We're told he's going to be blessed with royalty. Abraham is going to be blessed with kings in his line. Not only will they be a people or peoples, but there's going to be kings. They're going to be rulers of themselves, if you like. They're not going to be under other people. And earlier on in Genesis, we might have thought that kings would be a bad idea. But we've seen already now, haven't we, that kings are not all bad. Just a couple of chapters before, we had that priest king, Melchizedek, king of peace, king of righteousness. The impression is they're going to be good kings. And in addition to all this, he repeats the land promise, but adding that it will be an everlasting possession. And he promises that all this will be given to his offspring, literally to his seed. So the covenant's not just with him, but with his seed. And it's to be an eternal covenant, meaning it will pass down through generations. It's not just with Abraham, but it will carry on through the ages. And God will be God to his seed. There'll be a relationship with each other. He is their God and the seed as his people. That's the most amazing blessing in a way, isn't it? And it's not just for Abraham either. These promises are made about Sarah too. So if we've seen Abraham, sorry, now we see Sarah. Have a look at verses 15 and 16. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So most of the things that are promised to Abraham are promised to Sarai too. There's that renaming again. She's renamed. There's no change in meaning from Sarai to Sarah. Still means princess. But that fits, doesn't it, with the fact that she's promised royalty as well. And it also implies a new stage in their relationship. God promises to bless her. He promises her realms. She's promised that she will have a son, that they will become nations Plural. So Abraham's only just been promised this, and now Sarah's promised this as well. Royalty. Again, only not just only just promised to Abraham, but the implication is that the son that they have, it will be through him that this royalty promise will be realized. So the most significant thing about these promises to Sarah is that their promise will be accomplished. Through this promised son that God will give to Abraham and Sarah. But the implication there as well is that it's not through Ishmael. 
Hagar's son. And we'll see more of that in a few minutes. But let's sum up what we've been told about how this covenant with Abraham will come about. Well, the promises made to Abraham will be brought about through a perpetual covenant made with Abraham's seed through the generations. It will include righteousness and blamelessness and royalty too. Otherwise, that would be a strange detail to share, wouldn't it, at this point? So more of this later on. But the next thing we see about this promise it picks up on is the seed set apart Isaac, not Ishmael. Have a look at verse 18. Sorry, 17 and 18. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. After receiving this promise, Abraham is seemingly a bit shell-shocked. It seems, though, that he's understood the implications for his son Ishmael. Now think about this from Abraham's perspective. He's probably spent the last 13 years thinking that Ishmael was the son that God had promised. Ishmael is 13 years old at this point, And we've got no evidence that God told him that this wasn't the way that it was going to be until now. But now he's being told that the son is not going to be the one that the promise goes through. And seemingly he pleads with God that the promise might go through Ishmael. Abraham knows that this covenant involves walking before God. So he uses similar language for Ishmael. Oh, that he might live before you. Oh, that he might walk before you. Oh, that he might be the one. But no. As we've seen again and again with Abraham, God is not the God of shortcuts. The child God intended was a child of promise, not a child of quick fixes. Have a look at verse 19. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. See, we find out at this point that it's not indiscriminately with all his offspring that God has made this promise. By his seed, in one sense, meant just one. Seed and offspring can can be plural or singular, can mean one or many. Actually, later on in Genesis, Abraham is going to go on and have many children. But God's covenant, God's promises, are only passed on through one. God is selective in who his promise goes through. So it's not a matter of biology, but of theology. It's God who decides. And we'll see exactly the same principle at work when his son, Isaac, has children of his own. God chooses Jacob, but he doesn't choose Esau. The seed is Jacob, not Esau. He alone inherits this promise. He tells him that this son will be called Isaac. His name means laughter. And we've seen Abraham laugh in verse 17. I don't think it's a laugh of disbelief that we'll see from Sarah in the next passage. But it's the believing laugh. He does believe that God would do this, which is why he pleads for Ishmael. It's that laugh when you hear that you've won the lottery or, um, you know, that something amazing has happened. 
Uh, tears come later for lottery winners, don't they? They laugh when they win it, uh, and they, they cry when it all goes sour. But he's laughing in belief, not in disbelief. At the beginning of the passage, we see Abraham falling on his face before a holy God. By the end, he's falling on his face laughing that God would favour him so much in his old age. But he loves Ishmael. He pleads for Ishmael. So what's going to happen to Ishmael? We'll have a look at verses 20 and 21. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God makes promises to Ishmael too. He will be heir to prosperity, but not to the promises. He will become a great nation, but not like the one promised to Abraham's seed. He doesn't get kings, he gets princes, sort of minor royalty, if you like. No promise of a land of his own either. He will be blessed. He will be a multitude, but he will not inherit the amazing promises made to Abraham. So we see now that this is not a blanket promise. It's not a promise to everyone who can trace their earthly ancestry back to Abraham. If anything, this is actually more singular than we thought as we see it going through a particular line. The promise is passing down through individuals. The seed then, theoretically, might just be one person. And whoever they are, there will be a physical descendant of Abraham and Sarah. So in light of this promise that will come through his physical heir, God gives him a physical sign. We see that in our next point, the sign of the seed, circumcision. Have a look at verses 9 to 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In the middle of all this, God gives Abraham something to do to keep his covenant. Now again, like the bit at the beginning, this has caused no end of ink to be spilled. Is this making the unconditional promise of a few weeks ago now conditional on something else? Well, the simple answer is no. Why do I say that? Well, there are those here who are included in the promise, but aren't circumcised in our passage, namely Sarah. In fact, going forward, 50% of the inheritors of the promise will be uncircumcised. 
The Bible knows nothing about that abhorrent practice called female circumcision. There's no such thing. It's mutilation and it's got nothing to do with the promises of God. So we see that there are those who aren't circumcised that are included. And we also see that there are those who are circumcised. Sorry, we see those who aren't circumcised who are included. And those as well who aren't included but are circumcised. Namely Ishmael. So if you look down at 22 to 27, you'll see that what happens at the end is that Abraham circumcises Ishmael. But we've just been told Ishmael is not going to be heir of the promise. We're told that actually all his household is circumcised, regardless of their spiritual state, regardless of their relationship to the promise. Right here, even at its inception, even at its beginning, not everyone who was included in the promise had it. And people who did weren't automatically included with it. But we are told in verse 14 that those who refuse it are to be cut off. Seemingly, it's an indicator that they don't believe the promises of God to Abraham. It's actually a way of removing themselves from the community, that they don't join in and don't participate. They don't want to be part of Abraham's people. But there's an even more obvious reason why this doesn't make it conditional. The reason is that Abraham received his righteous standing before God when he was still uncircumcised. Paul makes exactly this point in Romans 4. I put it on the back of your notice sheet. Romans 4, 9 to 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness might be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What it's saying there is that Abraham received the blessing of the covenant, he started to receive the covenant, before he was circumcised. So circumcision was added after that. It's not conditional, it comes after. What is circumcision then? Well, Romans 4, 11, it said there, didn't it? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It was a sign. It was a token a carbon copy, if you like, of the covenant in his flesh. It was there as an assurance that God would keep his promises. Just as the rainbow in the sky after the rain was a sign for Noah, that God would keep his promise never to flood the whole earth again. It was a sign. It's there for his assurance, his own copy of the covenant, if you like, in his flesh. It's not there to make him righteous. He already is by faith. It's an outward sign of the circumcision of the heart 
that the Bible speaks about. So circumcision is a sign that he bears in his own flesh, a copy of the covenant, if you like. Clear so far? Roughly? Yeah? But there's more to it than that. That's why I wanted to check we were there already. The nature of of the sign is an indicator of its fulfilment. The sign shows us how it's going to be fulfilled. Now, I'm going to explain for a second what circumcision is. Uh, This is because I was in a Bible study a few, well, quite a few years ago now. Well, about 16 years ago, that's quite a while. Um, And uh, I was a student uh, Bible study leader. There were uh, three fresher girls in the Bible study. And we were looking at Galatians, which we're going to look at in a few moments' time. And it talked about circumcision. It talked about Paul saying that they wished they would go away and uh, emasculate themselves. It became quite clear that the girls didn't actually understand what circumcision was. It was making no, no sense to them. So I'm not going to assume that we know what it is. So this is slightly graphic for a moment, but not unhopeful, I, uh, uh, unhelpful, I hope. Um, so circumcision is the removal of the protective retractable skin at the end of a male's reproductive organs. That's basically what it is. It's not an essential part of the body, sometimes removed for medical reasons. In America, over half the population are circumcised. They, they think it's healthier, but as with most things, there's sort of studies that will tell you both ways. Why am I telling you this? Well, it's not an accident that this is the sign for the covenant. Okay? Think about it. God could have instituted baptism at this point, couldn't he? Because said, right, okay, sign the covenant, get baptised. It's physical, you go and do it, yep. But he doesn't. Or he could have done something far more visible, couldn't he? Like, you know, chop off the skin of your earlobe. Or put a tattoo on your forehead, or put a nose ring in, or something that would make sense as a sign that you see. That would make it gender neutral as well, wouldn't it? Everybody could join in. It would certainly make you distinct, wouldn't it? Especially if you did all those things. But why circumcision? Well, because the promise was to do with the seed, the offspring. To put it plainly, that's where the seed comes from, isn't it? The whole point of this implementation bit is that it will be passed on from generation to generation. More than that, from seed to seed, from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. To Jacob, well, it's ambiguous. Is it all 12? Or is it Joseph? Or is it Judah who's promised the throne? Either way, this was a mark that would be passed down the line to males in the family. The promise will see its fulfilment in a male seed, circumcised on the eighth day of the physical line of Abraham, of the physical line of Isaac. So circumcision is supposed to point us forward to the coming seed. Seed is a big deal in Genesis. It's used 59 times in Genesis and really not that often in the rest of the Old Testament. If you remember right the way back to Genesis 3, There was the seed of the woman, literally, who would crush the offspring's head. The seed of Abraham, who will inherit the promises to Abraham to remake the world. Blessing where there's cursing. Land where there's exile. A new people where there's rejection. What do we see then about this seed that's promised from our passage? Well, we see, don't we, it's a righteous seed. Walking blamelessly before God. 
That's got to be there, hasn't it? Otherwise, how could they inherit the promises? Without blemish, male, a descendant of Abraham and Sarah, specifically a descendant of Isaac, who will see the promises fulfilled as a return to Eden. If it's the same offspring as the offspring of the woman who will defeat the serpent, it'll be even better than Eden, evil done away with. So circumcision really is there to point us to Jesus. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Chris, he's always taking it to Jesus, isn't he? Come on, this is a bit of a stretch. It's clearly his descendants, the Israelites, that he's got in mind. That's the most obvious reading, isn't it? When we read seed, this is just taking liberties with the text, isn't it? Well, come with me to our last point more briefly. Galatians 3. The covenant completed in Christ. If you've got a blue Bible, Galatians 3, if you turn it up, it's on page 1076. I'm just going to read three verses to you. Galatians 3, 15 to 18. Galatians 3 and verse 15. To give an human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that has started to require that non-Jews get circumcised in order to be part of the church. Paul writes this letter to show them that they're wrong. We haven't got time to look at the whole letter, but you see there in verse 16, he tells us that the offspring that's promised to Abraham is Christ. So circumcision really was there to point us to that seed, singular, of Abraham. So it follows then, doesn't it, that if circumcision was a sign to point us to Christ, when we reach Christ... It becomes redundant. It was there to follow that line down through history to Jesus. And when that line comes to an end, the practice ends. So, for example, if you use a sat-nav, I've never got my head around sat-navs properly. But when when you've used your sat-nav to reach your destination, when you've got to your destination, the sat-nav becomes redundant, doesn't it? The point of a sat-nav is to get you there. And the point of circumcision was to get us to Christ. When you reach there, you switch your sat-nav off. Because otherwise it just keeps saying, you have reached your destination, you have reached your destination. And Paul makes a similar point here with the law further down the passage. So circumcision was the sign of the seed. But once the seed is here, it no longer serves a purpose. So it leaves us with a big question then. How do we apply a passage like this? Well, let's think of some wrong ways. It cannot be saying, go forth and get circumcised. So men, you can uncross your legs if you were thinking that was going to be the application. I hope you weren't thinking that was going to be the application. 
But this is why it's important to understand all passages in the light of Christ, isn't it? Because otherwise we could get down some very uh, strange alleyways taking the Bible literally, which we do take it literally, but we take it in the light of Christ. I also want to say here, it's not saying be baptised. So many of the commentaries that you read make this the application. They say, right, circumcision is a sign of the old covenant. Baptism is the sign of the new. But it's not quite that simple. It's not merely that one sign replaces the other. It's not uh, that you can just sort of flip between the two. Circumcision is fulfilled in Christ, the seed of Abraham. So we can't just map everything across because it's been fulfilled. I mean, if you think about it, how would it work with signs if you followed them along with a rainbow? How does rainbow fit with baptism? See, it's not quite that simple. If your head hurts, it's because that, that category change doesn't work. Having said that, if you are a believer and you haven't been baptised, you should be baptised. And come and talk to me afterwards, but that's not the application of this passage. The right understanding of this is to do what it's trying to get us to do. Look to Christ. Look to the righteousness by faith that is through him. That might be a less hands-on application, so to speak. But that's the way the Bible speaks about this. So again, on the back of your notice sheets, Colossians 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. It's saying that we're already circumcised, so to speak, inwardly. We're to look to the circumcision of the heart, as the Bible speaks of it, done by Christ. And it's through Christ that we're declared blameless as we walk before him. Again, same letter, Colossians 1, 21-22. And you now who were alienated and hostile in the mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's no accident that the language reflects Genesis 17. So the right response is to look to the seed that Genesis 17 is pointing us to. Look to him for your righteousness, not to anything else. And that's a harder application in a way than getting circumcised, isn't it? There's no quick fix there. You can't sort of tick it off your list. But it's the right response nonetheless. Why does it keep coming back to this? Well, because it seems like most of us, like we said at the beginning, that actually we need to be told something a lot of times before it sinks in. So it's really nothing that I contribute to my salvation. No. Really? No. So it's nothing that I do. No. So it's really all that Jesus did. Yes. It's his righteousness that I need and not my own. Yes. And I get it through faith and not my own good works. Yes. And that carries on when I'm a Christian. Yes. We need to hear that nearly every day, don't we? Because we so quickly fall into the trap of believing that it's by our own righteousness. We move on from grace so quickly. We move on to other things like the Galatians moved on to more tangible things like circumcision. We like quick fixes, don't we, that we can tick off. But here there is none. And we need to be told that again and again, that the way we live is daily looking to Christ. Well, Abraham has now been told three times that this will happen. And God will keep his promises 
to him. And we see actually this morning, don't we, that God has kept his promises to him in Christ. So let's put all our trust in him alone. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that he is that promised seed that was promised to Abraham, who would bring righteousness to us, Father, by faith. So, Father, we pray that you keep us looking to him. Father, not to our own works, not to our own performance, Father, but to Christ, who has done it all by his death on the cross. Pray that we trust in him with all our hearts, with all our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.